This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers is your one-stop shop to level up your skills. These episodes are a great way to get a preview of the fascinating subjects and knowledge from my guests, but if you want to build a deeper understanding and practical skills that will serve you on your regenerative journey, then you should check out their titles, like Coppice Agroforestry, The Book of Nature Connection, Practical No-Till Farming, Wild Plant Culture, and so many more. They've got audio, digital, and hard copy books so that you can choose your favorite format. Find it all now at NewSociety.com. Hey there, everybody. It's that time again. So in today's Regenerative Roundtable, my good friend Nick Steiner and I will give updates on our respective projects, both him on the island of Tenerife and myself in the mountains of central Catalonia in Spain. And in the update, we're going to talk about some of the changes that we've been experiencing this year. The big topic for us at the moment, and for many others in this area of the world, of course, is drought. Partly because Nick and I live in parts of the world where drought is a common factor, we've been actually researching it for some time and have some things to share. And we're in the middle of a pretty significant drought that's been going on for more than a year in this region. And in this episode, we're going to break down some of the common myths and misconceptions about drought and its causes. We're also going to talk about the link between drought and other common natural disasters such as floods and wildfires, and then give concrete examples from our respective home bases. We're also going to go into some of the hidden factors that lead to regional droughts and some of the science behind the way water works in the environment to cool the atmosphere and create more moderate conditions in the climate. So this chat is actually the first in a two-part look at drought, and it'll set us up for a second episode next week where we're going to break down some of the wide ranges of actions and changes that can make a difference, not only in mitigating the effects of drought, but also reversing the trends in the long term and rehydrating your landscape. So let's just jump right in. Hey, welcome back, Nick. Always good to chat with you. Um, it's actually been a little while since we checked in because you have transitioned away from climate farmers. So we're actually not talking about work stuff quite as regularly, though you are still helping me out with some projects. Why don't we get a little update right now? How are things going in Tenerife? What are the things that you're working on on your homestead? Um, yes, it's, it's going great. It's been one month now without regular Zoom calls. Uh, really loving it. So I finally have some time to actually get my hands dirty. I work on the things I always wanted to work on, but uh, never really got the time to doing. Um, I would say the the biggest change is that I'm one step closer to being a real farmer. I now have chickens, so that's uh, that's a big one. The gateway um, animal. Exactly. It's oh, and it's addictive. Uh, basically, a friend just asked me if I can adopt her two old chickens because she's moving, and I said yes, of course. And then I think three days later, I told my neighbor, and they have tons of chickens. And they're like, oh, yeah, do you want another mom with uh, five baby chicks? And of course, I said yes. So now I have a small flock, uh, which is exciting. Um, yeah, and apart from that, I just spend a lot of time now um, with carpentry stuff. So a lot of project I had been putting off. So obviously I had to build a chicken coop for the chickens. That's been fun, building it out of recycled materials, build a new bed for myself, lots of different new furniture uh, that I'm building here. So it's, uh, yeah, it's great fun to just be in the workshop all day and just work with hands instead of just my mind. Um, and then, yeah, what else is new? I think one thing that was a bit of a pity um, 
I wanted to install just a leak that I had on my toilet flush. So I thought it was just one of the O-rings, one of the like rubber rubber rings. So I started looking at it and then I realized it was, um, yeah, I was really damaged. So I got a new toilet. And while installing that and securing it in the floor, I managed to drill through. And unfortunately, it was a freshwater pipe. So then I have to take out the floor uh, because I had to get to that pipe to fix it. Then I realized I actually had drilled through uh, two pipes, had to take both of them out, then realized it was right next to two T-connectors. Uh, so long story short, I had to basically renovate my whole bathroom uh, just because I was <laughs> fixing a leaking toilet. So that turned into like a one and a half week. This project. I actually do remember. You were constantly sending me updates on WhatsApp of a new <laughs> increasingly large project that kept growing. <laughs> you had to yeah. like pick out the floor and do plumbing and like the rerouted tubes that went around both the drain pipe and around. man, that was some MacGyver stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how how many of the things in this house were built? It's uh, I don't know. You might almost call it criminal. Like, there's pipes and things in places where they definitely shouldn't be. Oh man, it's, I feel you on that one. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing right now. I was like trying to trace the plumbing system in this place, where they basically just stack systems on top of other systems, and I don't know which ones are actually working and which ones they're just like pipes that lead to nowhere. I found tons of those. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody bothered to take anything out when it didn't work anymore. Nice. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the things... just like a random cable in the middle of my garden. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I have tons of those. Whenever I'm digging something in the garden, that something weird comes up. But it's okay. It's okay. And yeah, one one thing that was just a bit worrying, like after I had finished everything and uh, did a little YouTube course on how to do tiling and all that, and after everything was closed up and done, um. I had the feeling that my my water tank is emptying too quickly. So just for, I think I explained it in the previous episode, but basically how it works, I have one big water tank that's next to the house. And then I always pump the water up to a 1000 liter tank on a terrace. And so from there I have pressure um, for, for the house. So I don't need to run pumps all the time, just very shortly every few weeks. And that tank keeps emptying and I was really worried. So to find the leak, I now installed water meters in different places. So basically they would run and they would show me if water is being used in that line. Um, and I was super worried that after fixing the whole toilet that under the floor, there's still a leak there. Uh, so I installed the water meter, but uh, yeah, luckily it's not. Um, and I installed another water meter for another part of the pipes. And also that part is not leaking. So yeah, I have no idea why the water is gone always so fast. Are you sure there's not a leak in the actual tank itself? Um, yeah, because I, I always just uh, pump into that 1,000 liter tank. And then from there, that one just empties too quickly. Um, but yeah, now I have the suspicion that because I had guests over, maybe they took super long showers. Or maybe it's the washing machine. So I'm, I'm going to monitor that now. So now that I have water meters, I can I can fully track everything. So that's going to be a big one. Maybe your leaks are your friends. <laughs> <laughs> likely the the weakest link in the chain. You know, human error is is always likely. So that's also here with this property where I want to make everything in a way build redundancy into all the systems that are crucial, make everything super idiot proof. It does help uh, when I'm away that I know. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you're gonna if you know you're gonna be gone for a while and there's people who don't understand your systems, it's gotta be pretty dummy proof. 
exactly exactly <laughs> and yeah there's there's one one other system i'm building at the moment um but i might get into it uh, a little later but yeah what's what's going on at, at your place no no no. hang on there's one more thing i wanted to ask you about because just before we started you were showing me the indoor plant self-watering lamp that you have <laughs> which sounds <laughs> totally safe oh uh, yeah um well what i built already for, for years is kind of self-watering pots so it's generally based on a wicking design so wicking pots and i have that outside uh, and so they have lots of different pots and i basically have a tiny self-watering food forest in pots uh that also works on a terrace and then i want to take that design inside just to make it more cozy uh, i started getting more house plants and different different plants and of course i don't want to spend all my time watering them and i want to be able to go away for a few weeks so now i'm trying to adapt the system that i have outside also for the inside, so that it's self-watering, that I, that it's easy maintenance. Um, the challenge there is on the outside. I'm working with big pipes. Um, it's yeah, it's it's just a big system. It works, but it's more in the prototype stage, so it's not the prettiest. And so for the inside, I try to make everything also look pretty, um, and work with thinner hoses and all that to kind of have it invisible but yeah that poses some other issues but it's really nice because I'm, I'm quite close to having a system that i can just leave alone and it's super low maintenance while having a jungle inside uh, so it's going to be exciting nice have you ever looked into getting the misting shower system to make sure that other people don't use too much water uh yes um i looked into the misting but one thing uh that's super crucial for it the water needs to be super hot yeah. so that the mist keeps its temperature because there's so much um, so much contact with air. So right. it really needs to be super hot for it to work. Um, I've looked into it now with my rocket stove water heater. I can get it pretty hot. Uh, yeah, it's, but it's something I, I looked into. I might do it again. And I mean, the good thing is all the shower water goes to the garden. So it's it's used. So it's yeah. not just going down the drain. Nice. Uh, yeah, let's see. Where have I left off since my last projects? Um, one of the big things that has freed up my time is I mentioned this on a previous episode that we were going to potentially buy a store in the city next to us. And that mercifully ended up falling through. Like they just couldn't get their paperwork together, the transfer of the business and stuff. Uh, it was a mess. And so we just pulled out and that was actually a big relief for both of us. Uh, it would have been nice to have, you know, I talked about it. It was, it was a uh, granel. It was um, a bulk goods store, right? So a lot of the stuff that I wasn't going to produce, nuts, spices, um, rice, that kind of stuff. Uh, and kind of closing the loop on our food consumption and all from good sources and local, you know, it would have been a fun store to have access to, but ultimately it would be one more thing that takes us away from this project at the moment and one more thing that kind of split our focus. And so that has given me a lot more time to just work on the lands. We are running up on the deadlines for two of the subsidies that we actually ended up getting before we finished buying the house. One was for putting fences on a rural plot, actually the triangle. If anybody's seen the, the videos where I show the different plots on the, on the land here. It's where the market gardens used to be. There's some terraces out there. It's the only place that we have active irrigation open to. And so that's where I'm going to be starting the tree nursery. I've been talking with 
uh, Rad, Mark Shepard's company, about getting some advice to set up a nursery and potentially even help them out as suppliers here in Europe, since we've got aligned ideas. And I've gotten some other consultations and advice, and I'm getting really excited about the idea, especially when I combine that with the land race gardening kick that I'm on. I'm sure everybody's heard the, the episodes previously, uh, and uh, there will be more coming up as well. And now that we're starting to get our small garden design, I'm really focusing on getting a large amount of diversity really closely planted together because I'm just not going to have time to produce anything in a major quantity right now. But it would be nice if despite not having a very big garden and producing much food this year, I will at least be able to get a good variety of crossbred seeds and promiscuously pollinated stuff that could be the seed base for a bigger attempt at, at production next year when things are a little more set up. And hopefully when rain finally comes back to this land, <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Let's see, what else? Uh, so there's fences. I'm starting to, actually today I was just doing a whole bunch of plumbing as well because I've got to get the hot water system hooked up for the annex in the back of the house where my sister and her girls are going to be staying. They're coming for two months at the end of this month of May. And so they're going to be spending most of the summer with us. And I'm really excited for that. We're going to be doing jungle school uh, where I just take them out and we do like nature projects and play in the garden. And, you know, we've got access to the river and a waterfall. I mean, it's going to be really, really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. But yeah, they've got to be comfortable. There should be showers. So getting that system hooked up. Man, uh, plumbing supplies are expensive. huh? Those <laughs> racked up really fast. I don't know if this is new because I wasn't buying a lot of at least higher quality plumbing supplies like when I was in Guatemala they just didn't have access to them but man prices are through the roof I think it's all all types of construction materials I've been hearing it from everywhere but anyway yeah especially one one thing I noticed uh, when I was building the rocket stove to heat my shower water um, basically I just wanted to get a little bit of copper tubing you know the soft copper tubing that you can bend and just bend it around the um, around the oven pipe to heat the water up in it but they just said one strip i think it was just 10 meters and it cost 120 euros Oof. it was absolutely ridiculous um yeah so i ended up just buying small strips of of copper with with a lot of connectors and did a lot of mm. copper soldering it was great for learning but yeah it's completely ridiculous where the prices are going the nice thing is a lot of the tubing that I know that I'm going to be taking out when I update the plumbing of this house is all copper, including the gas lines. So I'm just going to repurpose that if I get a chance to do any, you know, direct heating coils. Um, the gas lines are nice and thin. I think they should have enough surface area that I could do some fun stuff. But uh, yeah, so it's either that or I'll get to resell it. And I should hopefully start to offset some of the costs of all these renovations. Um, and then I've also done the same thing as you. I finally got the chickens over here. Uh, Alba's folks bought us a dozen chickens before we even bought the house, like <laughs> as a housewarming present. And we've been moved in here for like four months now, and <laughs> we haven't just prioritized bringing them over. So they keep bringing us eggs from our chickens, but they're the ones paying for the feed. So we finally pushed and got into it. I had this movable chicken coop that was based off of like a small Ridgedale permaculture one from, from Richard Perkins. And I haven't finished it, partly because I just I don't have time to go through the rotations right now. Um, but funny enough, we've got these 
three cement pools that used to be used for a trout hatchery back when there was a dam that connected to the river and fed water to the old mill. And so it would route through this trout hatchery. And well, since they took the dam out, there's no water that goes up through there. And so they've just been sitting dry and collecting organic matter. And there was one weekend where we just pulled everything out of one of the pools. And I probably got like four cubic meters of compost out of it that we dressed the top of our garden beds on. And so the bottom pool we turned into uh, no dig garden beds. And it's, you know, it's not a big garden, but it's the nicest soil that we have on the place right now. So it's just a kickstart for that. And we're actually starting to raise the chickens in the old trout hatchery, which, yeah, of course, like when there's no water to just switch animals, I'm sure it works the same. Uh, so, yeah, we've just been adapting and putting roost and stuff in a small portion where the machinery box used to be for the pumps and the filters. And I put in one of those automatic light sensor uh, chicken doors. And it, I mean, it's working, but they came over from this closed pen that they used to be at Alba's folks place. And so we're in this weird transition of teaching them how to go in and out of a door and then go outside. And it's kind of dumb because you have to like push them through the door and then they don't get it. So they just sit right in the middle of the door and block it like a traffic jam. So yeah, chicken traffic jam is where I'm at right now, raising them in a trout hatchery. Um, I don't, I don't I know if you. I would recommend that to other people. <laughs> Oh, I had the same with just the two of mine. Um, yeah, first nights, basically at night, I had to kind of bring them back home, show them like, hey, this is where you live. And then in the morning, I had to kind of slowly, <laughs> gently push them out through the door. And then one day, I came back to bring them to bed. I mean, it's kind of cute to bring chickens to bed at night. I, I like that activity. But then they actually made it by themselves. I was so proud. Oh, that was, that was the best moment. They actually managed to go to bed by themselves. So, yeah. Alba was doing that job. And then the the one rooster attacked her. And so now it's my job. <laughs> She's not having any of it anymore. Unfortunately, the rooster still respects me. So I have managed to avoid injury. But we'll see how long that lasts. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, look, so that's a good update of like what we've been working on up until now. I've, I could say a lot more about the actual work with climate farmers and uh, with the podcast and private clients, but we'll kind of wrap that in together because today we're going to be focusing on a topic that is very pertinent to what is happening in our region of the world right now, and that is drought. Uh, so maybe you want to start out by talking about the experience there on the island of Tenerife, and then I'll give you some news from the mainland. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, so so here it is it is really apparent that something is not the way it should be or the way it was. Um, so there's this Spanish saying "Abril aguas mil," uh, which basically means like April thousand waters, more or less, um, because generally the rainy season is happening in in autumn, starts in September, and then until the end of April, you have the rainy season and generally April is a very rainy month. So it's the last bit um, where you can really get your rains in, where you can saturate your soils. And it's great because um, like heat wise, you already have a lot of sun. Uh, plants are going into in full production. Everything's blooming, growing heavily. And then normally you get a lot of rain uh, that really then kickstarts the production and enables plants to store a bit more. Uh, for the long stretch until September. So over summer, we hardly get any rain. Um, 
Yeah, but this April we got basically nothing. Uh, I think a few parts of the island had a bit of rain uh, a few weeks back. But here we we got nothing. Um, all the fields where where my neighbors raise raise their cattle and animals they're already completely brown, completely dry. Um, so that is quite alarming. Um, and also here, like I I bought a big flexible water tank. Um, I'm, I think I talked about it in a previous episode, fifty thousand liters, where my plan was to fill it over the rainy season and then have that as a as a backup and have it for irrigation over the summer. But it was delivered a bit late, so yeah, it's still empty. But I was thinking, well, great in April, I'll still maybe get it half full or at least get something in. Um, but yeah, I got nothing, so um i'm i'm worried uh and i mean many places still have have wells still have have different kinds of water access but here since i'm fully off grid i have one water tank for the house for irrigation for for everything and yeah that's not getting any fuller so that's also why i'm so concerned about any kind of leaks because if that water is gone i'm i'm yeah i'm pretty screwed um and i guess that is a is a pretty tough place to be in but it's such a great teacher in the importance of water so i'm really in my garden everything i'm putting in the soil i'm really thinking like do i need to put it in this year can i wait a bit longer until i have enough water and that's when you really realize that water is such a crucial resource um yeah so here drought signs definitely there it's alarming but yeah looking at the news on on your side of the Atlantic, uh, it looks to be even more drastic on a larger scale. Yeah, I mean, look, you're used to getting what two hundred and fifty or so odd millimeters per year. Yeah, two eighty roughly. Yeah. Two eighty, sure. That's still, you know, it's, it's an arid island. Um, here, although there are definitely more arid parts of Spain, in Catalonia. Where I'm at, the average is about 750, which is still not tons, but what does that work out to about 27, I think, uh, inches, which definitely doesn't put me in an arid area. And I mean, I look around and everything's green and blooming. It doesn't look bad. This is my first year here, so I don't have a whole lot of reference as to what springs can look like. But I also know that I, like, we have a weather station literally right across the street from our house and we can see exactly how much we get. The entire month of April, we got uh, 28 liters, which is way lower than usual. And honestly, half of that happened on the very last day. That was a, <laughs> just a couple of days ago, we got our first decent rain of the month. Now there are other parts, including of Catalonia, which, you know, this isn't that big of an area, closer down by the coast and further south that pretty much didn't get anything all of April. And just like you said, this is often one of the rainiest months of the year, and it really sets the tone about what is available and what can grow for the coming summer. Now, one of the things that gives me a little bit of hope is that last year, which was a record drought year and the hottest year on record since they've been taking records, um, August was our rainiest month by a long shot. I'm looking at the graphs from rainfall last year and we got 125, 27 uh, liters in August. And since then the rainiest month actually was, let me look at it here, was February with 45. So, I mean, <laughs> like a hundred 
leaders less. And so, you know, it seems like things have just been completely thrown off of their normal cycles. Uh, it's really hard to have expectations for when water is going to come. And this kind of goes into where we're going to be talking more about like what drought actually is and what it isn't. Some of the myths and misconceptions, because there's a lot of talk right now. It's like, oh, it's not raining. We're in a drought. Mm. It depends, right? It depends on what your what your climate is, what the consumption of your area is. So uh, let's go into that first. In fact, I'm going to start right now with some of the statistics that I've got from Catalonia, because I have been looking into this. I've been working with clients who are concerned about this issue. I've been finishing up coursework for the Water Stories course. And so I've just kind of been in this research mode. And so to kind of give a, a bit of context about this. So this is a Mediterranean climate. We're in a bit of a micro pocket because we're in a small mountain range that's a little further inland. We're not quite coastal. So we get generally a little bit more rain. We get some very extreme swings of temperature. But in general, we're still a Mediterranean climate. And what that's characterized by is our rainy seasons being in spring and autumn, usually having kind of humid but mild winters and pretty much dry summers. And so if you look at it on a graph, when your temperatures are at their highest peak, look at it as like a hill, that is when you have the biggest valley in your rainfall if they were put overlapped on each other. And that's in real contrast to the area that I used to live where I grew up in Minnesota, where as the temperature increases, you also have the highest increase in rainfall. And so the graphs look very similar. And what that means is that it's not unusual. We're not necessarily in a drought if we have a dry summer. It's what's typical of this climactic pattern normally. Uh, obviously, that's not what has been the case over the last couple of years. And so Drought is not just a lack of rainfall or a long period of time without rain. Uh, you have to look at the climate that you're in. So for example, if you're in a desert and it doesn't rain for a long time, that doesn't mean you're in a drought, right? That's just the normal pattern of that area. And in contrast to that, if you're in a rainfall, it could be raining regularly or even daily and you could still be in a drought if it is lower than average over an extended period of time. It's basically the same as the difference between weather and climate, right? So you could be in a dry spell that isn't a drought just because you go through a couple of days or a week that's unusually dry. But as it starts to extend over periods of time and then you compare that to the average of your climate, that's when you start to look at uh, what a drought actually is in your context, right? Uh, what are some of the other things that you know from, from these definitions here and how it has affected your area, Nick? Um, yeah, here it's it's um, it's it's really tough to say because we have we have so many different climatic zones like just on the island. Um, so so we're in in between zones, and you have some parts that usually get a bit more rain. Uh, here in the north of the island, it's even uh, yeah, kind of called a little rainforest that we have there. And then in the south of the island, it's really like full on desert. Um, and then we have everything in between because. Here, Teide, it's the, the highest mountain in Spain, the volcano, with uh, 3.7 kilometers. So it's it's really high. Um, and this creates like all these different climatic zones. And everything is shifting a bit. So it's also for us, it's really difficult to say. Um, so by talking to the local farmers and others, they said it appears that the seasons are shifting a little bit. 
So what happened over the last year is that basically summer starts a bit later. Um, and so basically what, what would happen that you have full summer in, I don't know, like June, May, June, you would have full summer. But last year it's it was really cold and it's everything started a bit later, but then we had amazing summer almost through October, November. Um, so that was a bit interesting. Like this year, it all starts a bit hotter. Um, so yeah, it's it's tough to say, but but here, especially on the island, we have this very special condition that it's really tough to say what exact climate zone is it, because you can have it from one valley to the next. You can have difference of of five degrees, completely different rainfall, um, and it's also one of the intricate things I'm I'm getting deeper into, uh, and it's just really interesting to learn about um, how how this affects an island like, because it's such a special kind of kind of ecosystem um, but also it gives me a bit of hope long term so to say because the ocean is buffering a lot so ocean temperature it generally leads to places becoming less extreme so we don't get as hot in the summer and it doesn't get that cold in the winter um, so long term I'm less worried here than probably more inland Spain uh, I think they're we're we're facing some some serious issues um yeah but it's it's one of the things that's super interesting and it's so tough i mean i've only observed fully like one year now at the property and a few more years here on the island but that was further south where everything was different anyways um yeah it's it's tough to say the one thing i'm realizing though and what i'm seeing all over is that it's getting more extreme um, so longer stretches of drought, or not sure if you could if you could call it a drought straight away, um, but longer stretches without any rainfall, and then when it rains, it really pours. So then, really heavy rain events, uh, and that's what I'm seeing all over the world. Um, yeah, you, that we does now seem see to it. be the pattern that's emerging, right? Exactly. So generally, uh, what's happening is that averages of rainfall stay the same. But things are getting more extreme. So very long time, nothing, and then it all comes down at once. Uh, and I think that's the future that that we need to prepare for. Yeah, yeah. And it's also important to note that drought is not necessarily unnatural, at least not in in most climates. Like there are longer term changes that either go in cycles or are regular enough to call it a natural pattern within those climates, like the Mediterranean climate for sure has a long history of drought cycles. We are in especially extreme ones. The conditions that we're looking at are either completely unprecedented or the closest that I've heard about 60 years since there was an April, for example, this dry. Um, now it's also coupled with much higher temperatures, which has a stronger effect on the, I guess the land drying out the effect on farmers, you know, so all of these kind of come into play. And this is definitely not normal to have all of these things come together at the same time. Um, and like, for example, here in Catalonia, one of the biggest things that you can see immediately is the capacity of the reservoirs, which is oftentimes how people measure the severity of a drought, because those are the reserves of fresh water that are oftentimes the primary sources for larger populations in our case for the area of Barcelona and some of the smaller metropolitan areas of like Vic, the, the city that I'm near, uh, Girona and Tarragona down on the coast. 
Now, Tarragona is, is served from a different river, but we call them the Ter and Llobregat river basins are kind of the, the water catchments that feed those, those other city areas. For example, the, the famous reservoir that everybody looks at in Spain, because there was an entire medieval town that was sunk when that was built back in the 60s. And on a when the reservoir is, is completely full, there's a little church steeple that that pokes out the top. And you can kind of use it as a sounding device for where the water is on that church steeple is how high the reservoir is. Uh, it's like 20 meters below the base of the church now. People go and walk up to the church tour the old town. They've had events where people clean out the base of this. We're down to about 7% since the last readings I got um, at the end of April. 7% is beyond catastrophic. Like it's not creating hydroelectricity anymore. The water really can't be used. The sediment in it and the lower oxygen levels mean that fish can't survive. So it's basically a dead water base. And that's like 15 minutes north of me. Um, I'm just starting to understand how rich in water resources this area, which is a natural park called Las Guillerías, used to be before they essentially drained all of the area into the reservoir back in the 60s. And the higher points have become quite desiccated. And well, now that the, the reservoir is also dry, the whole area is really desiccated as well. It's a really stark example of the need for decentralized water catchment systems rather than having them all in single centralized ones, which when they fail means that the entire area becomes desiccated. Um, the other thing too is the massive population boom that's happened, especially in the cities and the coastal areas around Catalonia. Um, if you look on a demographic map of this area of Spain, most of the counties or comarcas as they're called here have been losing population significantly and drastically for the last, well, almost a hundred years. And the few counties that have been gaining in population have been gaining massively, not only from flight from those other rural counties, but also from immigration. And just since the year 2000, there has been an increase of population of about 1.6 million. And that's significant for an overall population of 7.6, I think, 7.7. .7. And so, yeah, that's a significant percentage of the overall population that's come just in the last 23 years. And what that means is that there's been a massive increase in the consumption in some of the areas that don't have a very secure water supply. The city of Barcelona pretty much gets all of its water from the basin of the Llobregat, which is not a large river. It's delta, it's, it's, uh, its area where it reaches the Mediterranean Sea is just below the airport. And that is almost always a bit of a trickle. And the emergency supply is from the reservoir, which I just described, <laughs> which is pretty much empty. So they're really starting to reach drastic measures. And because we had such a drought last year and we basically didn't replenish any of that water over this dry winter and very dry spring, they started to, to implement water restrictions in most populated counties back in March, which is quite unprecedented. And like we've had significant drought years pretty recently. Uh, one of the most severe ones were, was back in 2017, uh, just a little before I came here to, to Europe. And I've read articles and research papers about the reaction to that. There have been talks since then about rerouting other portions of other rivers all the way here, which is a terrible idea. 
So fortunately, it was scrapped because they got enough water, but we'll see what sort of reactionary measures are taken now that we're in a real severe situation. And then when it got drastic uh, in, in the summer, they actually started to ship in tankers of fresh water from lower areas of Spain that actually have less fresh water. We're talking like Almeria and Murcia and, and, and also Tarragona and also from southern France. And it's millions of euros for each one of those tankers. And I believe it was calculated that each one of the tankers had enough fresh water for the population of metro area Barcelona for like eight hours. So it's not a long term solution. Like, so the longer term solution that they did implement since then was to build a, a major desalination plant. And that came online, I believe, in 2012. And I also believe that earlier, like in 2007, 2009, I, I got to check my papers, uh, is when they completely privatized the water system for the municipal area. And so we'll see how that plays out in the long term. I'm not going to weigh in on the politics of that, but privatizing water is is a whole nother bag. Of, <laughs> like, let's not go there. Uh, that would take up an entire episode and I got to do a little more research before I, I can speak confidently on it. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. That's some of the research that I've been doing recently and the effects are really starting to play out now. It's going to be interesting to see the response of this area and the options that are or are not available and whether or not we reach capacity with those desalination plants, which seems to be an increasingly popular way of trying to overcome freshwater deficits of areas that are increasingly stressed. But of course, those come with a lot of energy needs, which of course add to the energy consumption of an area, which is trying to reduce its energy consumption. And the effluent flow from what is filtered out of the water usually ends up going in the same place. And so you get concentrated salt and other contaminants in those areas, uh, which can really wreak havoc on marine life as well. Uh, have you researched or heard about any of the responses to drought and deficits of water in your area or others that you would like to point out? Um, yeah, not not so specifically um, responses here. It's just one thing that we're observing here on the island, um, which is the huge problem of tourism. Um, so here on the island, it's around 1 million inhabitants. And I think yearly, um, yeah, also around... I think 12 million tourists. And so the whole island is just being turned into tourist resorts. And of course, they all need pools uh, and golf courses and all this kind of bullshit. So it's it's a huge issue here for the islands. They're getting completely drowned in, uh, drowned in tourists with very high water needs and the local population is really suffering. So that's one of the big issues here. Um, and also we already had the first fires here of the season, I think even in March. Um, so it is, say, normal, but it, it happens quite a lot that we have higher fire risks uh, towards July, August. Uh, so after the summer, fires are a big issue. And that they're happening so early now, that was a big wake-up call. Um, and it's one of the things that is, well, it's, it's not going to get less on the long run. So with these extremes, if we have these very long stretch of no water, um, that's the issue when we get higher fire risks. So basically droughts are kind of just floods and fires waiting to happen. 
Uh, and so when I first got into this topic, I thought like, how, how can that be? Like, how can drought and a flood be related? Like, shouldn't the floods just put the water back? Like a flood means too much water, no? Um, but that's what I'm learning more and more. And that's the main thing people need to understand that when areas are so dry and when there's no place for water to infiltrate because the, the soil just turns into kind of a concrete we're taking away all the vegetation. Uh, we're taking away the protective cover. We're taking away the um, the the roots and the absorption capacity of soils, and it basically just gets baked. So what happens then when we get these heavy rainfalls? The water can't infiltrate. Like there's no place to go. Um, and what we see then is that everything just erodes away. And well, if the water then can't infiltrate. It's only a matter of time before it's dry again, before it's it's a drought again. And then we see these big fires because just some of the older trees with their big roots, uh, they're more established. Um, they're still there, but nothing new can grow in these, in these really critical conditions. Um, and that's one of the main things where we can also tackle this problem, like by making sure that water can get into the ground, by making sure that we're able to harvest these rain events and instead of turning them into floods and problems, uh, we can turn them into fertility again. And that's the main thing what we need to do together with plants. Like we need to replant these areas because when you have a lush green ecosystem that's able to handle these extremes, it's able to buffer them. Um, and that's also one of the main things here uh, on the island where I'm really excited to go into in the next years like let's see what we can do um slowly turn the dry areas green again um and that's also what needs to happen everywhere and i mean i think we could do a whole episode just on drought floods and fires and how how those are related um but maybe to make it more um yeah bringing it back to the time that we're in now like what are you seeing there what what connections are happening in, in your area well, I mean, we're seeing very similar things in that the fire season has already started since back in March. Um, last year alone, over 300,000 hectares were burned across Spain. And which is kind of funny, like when we're talking about trying to store carbon in farms and, you know, <laughs> get people carbon credits and return to regenerative agriculture, it's like, how much could we do by just preventing 300,000 hectares from burning in a year, right? Um, <laughs> because the amount of replanting and uh, restoration work that then needs to be done is a huge drain economically and really prevention is the best way. It makes me want to go back though first to talking about the conditions that lead to drought susceptibility because oftentimes rain patterns changing or reduced rainfall is a symptom of larger drought patterns that happens later rather than the initiating event that starts a drought, right? Uh, maybe you could give us an overview about some of the main things, especially in land management and consumption that start a drought pattern regardless of rain rainfall. Um, yeah, so one of the crucial things we need to understand is that rain doesn't just come from from oceans and evaporation of water bodies so one of the most important sources um, of rain is actually what's 
leaving through plants and through their leaves as transpiration. Um, and it's something we, we tend to forget. And it's the one thing that, that we can clearly see with rainforests. Like generally rainforests are not there because it rains a lot. It rains a lot because the forests are there. And this connection is something that we really need to understand. And it's also something I'm really worried about in the Amazon area. Like it might be that in future generations, they will speak about the Amazon desert compared to the Amazon rainforest, because at some point this will tip. Um, and so this is one of the main things that, that we need to understand. Like some trees can give off um, multiple hundred liters of water a day, like just through their leaves. And it actually works like an air conditioning system also for them. So around them, it cools the area. Um, and the good thing is that the kind of vapor that leaves through the leaves, it also has lots of tiny bacteria, dust molecules. So these droplets um, form the nuclei then for raindrops. And this is something crucial. Also, generally, when you have evaporation over oceans and all the drops are bigger, uh, the nuclei are bigger. So you, you don't really have that many um, points for raindrops to form. And this is what we need to understand that over the land, like if we have a lot of vegetation, if we have enough plants that can then basically create their own rain, like this can lead further inland. So you have the prevailing winds, you have different, um, different patterns there, and these can actually take those rain clouds and they can make their own rain. And so we need to see, like depending on where the wind goes, we often see an area that's dry and we think, oh, that area um, has the issue, but the issue is quite likely further um, along where the winds are coming from. And that's also where we need to start tackling the issue. Let's see that we get the vegetation back up, that we can infiltrate in those areas. And then if we have the vegetative cover, if we have forests there, they can then plant the rain that through the wind will come down in other areas. Um, and also generally cities, everything we design was designed in a way to get water away as quickly as possible. Um, to make sure that it never <laughs> infiltrates anyway. Um, and that's the big thing we need to reverse. Now we need to make sure that every spot we have is able to infiltrate water. It's able to restore the water cycle. Um, and that's something we can do small, we can do big. Uh, but yeah, we, we really need to get this done. We see it over and over now uh, with these extremes that are coming. And it's something we need to tackle drastically because we can we can do it the techniques are there there's enough examples of places where water cycles have been restored on small scale on large scale um, but if we don't do that and we only start when the reservoirs reach zero percent um, as we're getting very close in your area i mean that's too late uh, let's do it now while there still is some rain and we need the rain to get those systems established yeah. Um, yeah, but it's it's such a big debate. So it depends on how how deep we want to go into this now, or if we dedicate another episode to to going more into into what can be done. Yeah, let's let's make that another episode, and maybe even like a second part to this. Um, partly because it's getting late here, but a few more things before we wrap this one up and and set ourselves up to talking about solutions, because there are a lot of really encouraging opportunities here, much like you talked about the the technology, the knowledge, the even wisdom and history is here to inform some really big transformations that have the potential for turning things around much faster, in my opinion, than 
carbon sequestration. You and I have talked about this a lot. Um, it can often be the catalyst that even accelerates the sequestration of carbon if that's, let's say, a priority. <laughs> um, you know, I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm of the opinion that that's somewhat of a symptomatic way of looking at, uh, of addressing ecosystem health, like a rising temperature in a human body would say, okay, your, your body is trying to fight off some core issue in its system. You know, you don't necessarily need to lower the temperature. You need to deal with the reasons behind why the temperature is rising, right? Um, so rather than, you know, taking a painkiller, maybe address the source of pain. And a lot of this starts. OK, so let, let's go into some of the science of this, because like I have a background in refrigerator, uh, being a refrigerator technician on ships. That wouldn't be something that you would think would be relevant to this conversation. But a general understanding of how liquids work with thermodynamics is the reason why having moisture in an ecosystem can cool it down so significantly. So you were talking about how vegetation can transpire and atomize water into the atmosphere. Well, any kind of liquid, when it changes phase from a solid to a liquid to a gas, it absorbs a huge ton of energy in that process. It's just what's required. So if you're boiling water and you're getting a whole bunch of vapor, that vapor is absorbing a ton of heat as it turns to a gas, and its surface area is expanded massively. And this is for the same reason that you were talking before earlier about the, the misting system for a shower. The reason why you have to superheat it so much is because as soon as it expands its surface area, it cools off immediately, right? And that's exactly how evaporators work in refrigerators. So as soon as they atomize, they can suddenly absorb a huge ton of heat. Now these are compressed gases, so they can do this under atmospheric temperatures. And so that causes a space to be cool and you route that through the space that you wanna cool down. Well, the same thing happens in our atmosphere too. And water vapor is such a significant part of the gases in the atmosphere. And it potentially regulates such a large portion of temperature in our atmosphere, arguably much more so than carbon, um, to the tune of maybe, you know, like 95 to, to 90% uh, that, focusing on rehydrating landscapes and the role that vegetation serves in causing that pump to cycle, right? Bringing water up from the soil or even transmuting it through the atmosphere and transpiring it up into the air, as well as the bacteria and uh, the smaller, even spores of, of, uh, of mycorrhizal fungi can have a big impact on whether or not that atomized water recongeals, condenses, and then falls as rain. So this is what we're talking about, about the, the hydrological pump, this cycle that in its action can cool atmospheric temperatures down, especially down at those lower levels where you're getting shade from the vegetation, you're getting increased humidity at those lower levels. And even though you might have very strong sun radiation at the higher portions, you might have a difference of two, three, I don't know, five degrees of temperature difference down how we experience it with, quite frankly, is what matters to me. So, I mean, that, that's just some of the basic <laughs> science of the thermodynamics of, of transpiration, but this also works in, in other ways, right? And for example, uh, hotter soils are incapable of absorbing as much moisture. If they're cool, if they're already hydrated, if they're already moist, they're able to 
absorb water much more readily. And this is true whether there's a high level of organic matter or not. And maybe people who have put compost on top of their garden beds will know that if it gets dried out, oftentimes one of the microbial responses is to create a hydrophobic layer. Sometimes it's like a waxy or a, or a hard coating on top of your soil. And that's, you know, almost, uh, you know, sometimes up to 50% organic matter, and it can still start to shed water as it dries out and heats up. So keeping it cool and keeping it moist can be the difference between making use of a rain event, what we call effective rainfall, or in these more spread out, more intense events, even with higher organic matters in your soil, you could still be shedding off a huge amount of that, of that rainfall. So I guess <laughs> we're getting kind of technical on this stuff, but it is important to see that when you turn around some small things, very large changes can happen, right? As water is able to re-infiltrate into the ground, you start to recharge the groundwater levels of which most water bodies are dependent on. And certainly when you start to get into wells and drawing from the earth itself, you're starting to draw from the bank account of previous rain events. Now, if you're preventing them from refilling, right, by creating any kind of impermeable layer or an inability for the grounds to take up water, uh, sometimes this can be done mechanically, this can be done uh, chemically, but you are no longer getting deposits into that bank account, but you're constantly withdrawing, right? Which everybody knows who's ever hit <laughs> an overdraft on their bank. Uh, you can reach the base of that and then there's just no more. There's nothing more to work with. And so making sure that you're constantly refilling it at least as much, if not more than you are withdrawing from it is the only way that we're going to have a sustainable water future in any sort of way. All right, so with that kind of stuff said, maybe we should kind of put a pin in it for now and then go into the myriad different ways at a number of different scales, whether you're you know, in an apartment block or a small house, whether you have a homestead sized plot of land or you're working at an ecosystem or a regional scale, how you can actively work to rehydrate landscapes as well as the potential benefits that can come from that. Should we leave that for another one? Yeah, sounds, sounds like a good plan because there's so many things to do. Um, but yeah, attention spans are limited. And uh, let, let's not uh, overburden our listeners with, with too much nerdy talk about Yeah, I was getting kind of excited there about thermodynamics. I'll let everybody take a break. <laughs> I absolutely love it. But, you know, we need to, we need to be cautious of, of our listeners. Yeah, we got to pace it out. As nerdy as us. <laughs> if any of you are not totally burned out by this conversation already, I really encourage you to reach out to us on the... Well, the, the Discord is a really great way to have a conversation about this. Nick is very active on social media. You can find him on Instagram at PermaNick. And do you, do you use any other ones actively? Uh, LinkedIn is... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're really good on LinkedIn. I'm terrible at that one. I always forget that one. Yeah. Um, so if you've messaged me on LinkedIn, that's the reason why I haven't responded to you. I never checked that one. Uh, I'm not as good about getting back on social media. I really try and put focus on the people who are in the forums on Discord. And you can also email me through the website. And yeah, that's where these conversations are going to continue. And if you have some particular questions that you would like answered on the next episode, when we go more into solutions and actions, I would love to hear those and make sure that we can get to them as well. And... Yeah, until then, I'll keep raising chickens in my trout hatchery. And <laughs> Nick. 
Yeah, it's it's been such a pleasure and wow, what a timing. I'm just hearing raindrops on our roof. Oh, good luck, bud. I hope you right. get something. Yeah, it's a bit of a drizzle. Man, if we get one, more than one millimeter, I'll already be uh, really happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll temper those expectations. All right, everybody, it's been super fun. We'll talk to you on the next one. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. All right, there you have it. These regenerative roundtables are super fun, especially because we're starting to bring in more of the topics and the interactions from the different groups and the channels where we're chatting with people who listen to these episodes as well. So if you want to get in touch, reach out to us, ask questions, or contribute to this kind of content, we would love to hear from you. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.